District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. It's the last Monday of November, and I believe this is episode 231 of District of Conservation. I'm Gabriella Hoffman. For those of you just tuning into the podcast, I host this show, and I've been doing this for about three years, and I'm grateful to each and every one of you, new or returning listener, for tuning in when I cover the latest in conservation, energy, wildlife, gun, shooting sports, and related news. I have some stuff for you all today. We're going to go into great detail about this new report from the Department of Interior and their recommendations to phase out, essentially, oil and gas permitting on federal public lands or to greatly diminish it. And I'm going to explain why what is old is new again. We have heard this before. And I'm going to talk about monarch butterflies, but some housekeeping items. You can catch me on the Blood Origins podcast today, I believe, on their latest Roundup episode, and we talk about some of the latest stories in conservation and wildlife. So head over to the show notes to subscribe to the Blood Origins podcast, and you can hear me chat with Robbie and Cody about some interesting stories and my reaction to their episode with Matt Ranella, brother of Stephen Ranella, who is quite controversial and very different from his brother. Also, you can find me in Desiree News, which is a prominent Utah publication. This week, I'm recording before I know when it's published, but my latest Young Voices contributor op-ed on national monuments and how, by them being weaponized, can actually push recreationists, especially hunters and anglers, out of opportunities to access public lands. No one really talks about this, but this is kind of an unintended consequence, and this stems also from one of President Biden's latest actions. But those are some housekeeping notes, and we're going to go into today's episode now. On Friday, the Biden administration Interior Department released their long-anticipated report on federal oil and gas leasing and permitting practices in terms of reviewing onshore and offshore oil and gas programs, and this pertains to public lands. And if you guys recall, Executive Order 14008 that was issued on January 27th, the Executive Order on Tackling the Climate Crisis at Home and Abroad, called for a review into this. And essentially, their goal is, as you see by all these actions coming from Washington and from this administration, is to purposely, I would say, undermine oil and gas and in exchange for that, move completely to renewable exploration on public lands, which is problematic in and of itself when you're specifically focusing on solar and wind and not geothermal. But the new report is out. I'm going to read for you the press release a little bit. Here's what the Secretary of Interior, Deb Haaland, said. Our nation faces a profound climate crisis that is impacting every American. The Interior Department has an obligation to responsibly manage our public lands and waters, providing a fair return to the taxpayer and mitigating worsening climate impacts, while staying steadfast in the pursuit of environmental justice, said Secretary Deb Haaland. This review outlines significant deficiencies in the federal oil and gas programs and identifies important and urgent fiscal and programmatic reforms that will benefit the American people, end quote. Like I said, it stems from Executive Order 14008. Essentially, Secretary Holland and her department 
are claiming that the existing oil and gas leasing process is shortchanging the taxpayers. And that is quite rich coming from an agency that is part of an administration that taxes and spends. This is why we're seeing inflation unrelated to conservation, but you want to know why we're paying more at the pump. It's not because of oil and gas companies. It's because of this injection of cash that we're seeing in the form of inflation, which is why gas prices are going up. And this whole move to take from the strategic petroleum reserve is completely haphazard. And it's only about two and a half days worth of oil that Americans consume daily, which is 18.2 million gallons of gas consumed a day by Americans. But in the press release, they say in order to restore balance to the programs, the department's report makes a number of specific recommendations, including adjusting royalty and bonding rates, prioritizing leases in areas with known resource potential and avoiding leasing that conflicts with recreation, wildlife habitat, conservation, historical and cultural resources, all of which are consistent with pending congressional proposals. And as Axios noted, the current leasing rate is 12.5%. And if you understand basic economics, anytime the government raises taxes, those increased fees typically trickle down to consumers and those in lower income brackets. And they're all doing this in the name of forced transition to renewables or so-called clean energy, especially solar and wind. And while the report stopped short of proposing a specific number in mind, I see some estimates coming from the Washington Post saying they want to hike it to 18.75 for drilling in deep waters offshore. And onshore and offshore drilling are very different. If you don't know, onshore drilling is drilling on federal public lands. Offshore is offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, Pacific, Atlantic coast, specifically Atlantic coast. You don't really see anything in the Pacific ocean because of moratoriums that have been in place. Now I want to read for you that their goal essentially is to hamstring oil and gas in the future for future leases to force transitioning to clean energy or to renewable energy, two different things on page three. Here's how their intentions are laid out. Quote, the fiscal components of the onshore federal oil and gas program are particularly outdated with royalty rates that have not been raised for 100 years. States with leading oil and gas production apply royalty rates on state lands that are significantly higher than those assessed on federal lands. And they cite the Texas royalty rate, for example, can be double the federal rate. Likewise, bonding levels have not been raised for 50 years. Federal minimum bids and rents have been the same for over 30 years. These antiquated approaches hurt not only the federal taxpayer, but also state budgets because states receive a significant share of oil and gas revenues. That's what they claim. And what are three of their programmatic goals? And that was taken from page three. They say the reforms serve three main programmatic goals, providing a fair return to the American public and states from federal management of public lands and waters, including for development of energy resources, designing a more responsible leasing and development process that prioritize areas that are suitable for development and ensure leasees and operators have the financial and technical capacity to comply with all applicable laws and regulations and creating a more transparent, inclusive, and just approach to leasing and permitting provides meaningful opportunity for public engagement and tribal consultations. How is this extending it to the public if they're purposely hiking the fees to disincentivize oil and gas companies from making bids? That's not fair and equitable. That is picking winners and losers ultimately to give preference to solar and wind and maybe to geothermal, but there I'll talk about geothermal later. 
with the Bureau of Land Management director in tomorrow's episode, but they're not serious about geothermal. If, if we are supposed to see clean energy development, I would like to see geothermal, which is already existing with thermal deposits. And they say that federal onshore oil and gas production accounts for 7% of domestically produced oil and 8% produced natural gas. What their reforms are, of course, like I'm saying right now, they're pushing strictly for renewable on public lands. And that will breed a lot of controversy given some of the shortcomings of solar and wind, which I've outlined in some past episodes. The need for reform from page six. In recent decades, the nation's energy needs and the mix of resources available on domestic and global energy markets have materially changed, while the statutes and policies underpinning the nation's oil and gas program have remained largely static. Utility-scale renewable energy production has emerged as a viable source of energy that can be generated on public lands and in offshore waters. The direct and indirect impacts associated with oil and gas development on our nation's land, water, wildlife, and the health of security of communities, particularly communities of color who bear a disproportionate burden of pollution, merit a fundamental rebalancing of the federal oil and gas program. And they cite in the report that the existing oil and gas program has been identified on the government accountability office's, quote, high-risk list for more than a decade, which notes programs and operations that are vulnerable to waste, fraud, abuse, or management, or in the need of transformation. Transformation, where have we heard that term before? They want to raise it, the rate, of course, as I've alluded to. When it comes to lease surety bonds, the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, should increase minimum bond amounts and set the appropriate levels, taking into consideration changes in technology, the complexity and depth of modern wells, inflation, and the risk of abandonment. While such regulations are being developed, BLM should adjust bonds for individual high-risk leases through adequacy reviews and when leases are reinstated or applications for permit to drill are extended. They also want to do this for offshore. What they plan to do, and if you remember, offshore oil and gas royalties go to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So if you were to stop that, you would significantly eat away at the funding for this critical conservation program, double-edged sword. And what they say is they want the BOEM, which is an agency of Department of Interior, which relates to offshore wind development and offshore activities. They plan to develop a, quote, fitness to operate end quote, standard for companies seeking to be designated as oil and gas operators and evaluate how to apply such a standard to potential new leases or current leases seeking to gain additional properties. This is on page 11. Onshore and offshore. And the kicker to all of this is page 14. Creating a more inclusive and just approach to managing public lands and waters. The stewardship mission of DOI mandates processes for outreach and receipt of public input, including from communities that may be most affected by DOI activities. These processes have not always been adequate, fair, or equitable, which thus perpetuates environmental injustice. Keyword there, they want to pursue environmental justice. Practices such as allowing anonymous lease nominations and recent efforts to restrict or eliminate public notice and comment periods can leave local communities' voices, including in particular tribal voices, out of leasing and permitting processes. Who's restricting comment periods this administration is from hunting to this proposal everything is very hidden ironic of them to claim that the doi should undertake meaningful tribal consultations and solicit public input more generally regarding its leasing and permitting processes i like i said with their they're admitting they're pushing strictly renewable particularly solar and wind how is this equitable assuage the concerns of their environmental backers including some in the tribal community 
And not all tribal voices are the same. There are Utah tribes and there are tribes out West that support oil and gas drilling. And there are some that don't. It reminds to me what President Obama, who was Biden's boss for eight years, his comments on coal. And from Politico in a 2012 article, President Obama was quoted as saying in an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle in 2008, quote, if somebody wants to build a coal-fired plant, they can. It's just that it will bankrupt them, Obama said, responding to a question about his cap-and-trade plan. Newsbusters, which is a conservative media watchdog, obtained this audio transcript, and I was trying to find it for accuracy. So I want to give you guys the full context of what then-President Obama, or then-Candidate Obama said, how these comments were surfaced when he ran for re-election. And here's what he said according to that audio that was in the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm not making this up out of thin air. So if somebody wants to build a coal-powered plant, they can. It's just that it will bankrupt them because they're going to be charged a huge sum for all that greenhouse gas that's being emitted. That will also generate billions of dollars that we can invest in solar, wind, biodiesel, and alternative energy approaches. The only thing I've said with respect to coal, I haven't been some coal booster. What I have said is that for us to take coal off the table as a sick ideological matter, as opposed to saying if technology allows us to use coal in a clean way, we should pursue it. So if somebody wants to build a coal plot, they can't. It's just that it will bankrupt them. Those are the full context of his words. And to me, with their, with what the Biden administration is doing, saying we need to raise the fees. And they've campaigned on going carbon-free by 2045, 2050, 2030 even, in some instances, 2035. It's changing, ever-changing, when that deadline to decarbonize is. But President Biden campaigned on phasing away fossil fuels eventually. The Interior Secretary has said, we're going to transition. The BLM Director has said, we're going to transition and prioritize renewable energy, especially in the form of solar and wind. So what's old is new again. What's past is prologue. They also didn't just simply say it by words. President Obama simply just didn't say this. He followed through on his promises to make coal less desirable. And he is credited with destroying the coal industry, his policies, especially under the EPA and Department of Energy. In 2016, from the Washington Post, Interior Secretary Sally Jewell announced the temporary halt, saying it was time to re-examine the decades-old coal leasing program. Doesn't it sound like what they want to do with reassessing and reimagining the existing federal oil and gas programs? From health and environmental impacts to whether U.S. citizens are getting a fair return for the hundreds of millions of tons of government-owned coal that are mined and sold each year. It is abundantly clear that times are different in the energy sector now that they were 30 years ago, and we must undertake a review. That's what we need to do as responsible stewards of the nation's assets, Jewell said in a conference with reporters. That was a time 30 years ago when our nation had very different priorities and needs. The result was a federal coal program designed to get as much coal out of the ground as possible. And in many ways, that's the program that we've been operating ever since. USA Today, 2012. Under Obama, the EPA has proposed and promulgated the Utility Maximum Achievable Con Control Technology Rule, more commonly known as Utility MACT, imposing expensive control retrofits on coal-fired plants. The agency itself estimates the cost to the economy because of the new rule will be $10 billion per year. Private studies indicate it is more likely to be twice that, leading to higher electricity rates, and when combined with the new rules, the so-called greenhouse gases force most of these plants to close. Here is some of the response from natural resources Republicans and the Western caucus for you all, because naturally I think it's important to include why 
People are opposed to this. Natural Resources Ranking member Bruce Westerman of Arkansas said in response to this report, in what has become a clear pattern with the Biden administration, DOI is quietly releasing this report the Friday of a holiday weekend, months after they promised it, in the hopes that no one notices their continued attacks on domestic energy. Ironically, this is also coming mere days after President Biden announced he was releasing 50 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in a last-ditch effort to stabilize the energy crisis of his own making. The report basically pushed two major self-serving themes for the administration. The first is to downplay the volume of oil and gas produced on federal onshore and offshore leases. The second is to build a case saying the American taxpayers being cheated and social and environmental justices are being violated so producers should pay more to produce on federal lands. Instead, the administration should ask themselves the obvious questions of why such a small amount of energy is produced from federal lands if it's a giveaway to companies producing on federal lands and those companies can run roughshed over human rights and environmental laws as they claim in the report. The truth is the administration's arguments are false and are simply justifications to make it even harder and more expensive to produce energy on federal lands. I also wanted to point on the environmental justice component. It is actually minorities who are displaced from higher energy costs and who cannot afford solar and wind and alternatives mostly. They largely rely on natural gas, those living in the cities and in lower income neighborhoods. So it's actually environmental injustice to raise energy fees because you price out people, especially those in minority communities, from having cheap affordable fuel. That's something they don't like to talk about, but that's what their policies do. Here is Western Caucus Chair Dan Newhouse's statement dated November 26th, this past Friday. He says, once again, President Biden's self-inflicted energy crisis has harmed rural communities who rely on federal oil and gas production for revenue to provide basic community services, said Chairman Newhouse. The Western Caucus is a voice for these rural communities and an advocate for an all-of-the-above energy strategy. We know our nation cannot run on solar and wind alone. We need reliable sources of baseload energy. Nearly a quarter of our nation's oil and gas comes from federal leases. Producers on federal lands have worked to ensure the community's wildlife, lands, and waters are taken care of with responsible, efficient, and environmentally friendly production practices. He continued, instead of working with rural communities and the oil and gas industry, the administration has clearly and willfully ignored local voices. In the process, he will drive production overseas, harming rural communities who depend on this development and threatening our national energy security. We cannot continue these relentless, baseless attacks on domestic oil and gas producers, and I challenge the Biden administration to sincerely engage with the stakeholders directly. I've laid out the case, trying to give deference to both sides of the argument. Having glanced over this report, their recommendations are asinine. They economically make no sense. It's to satisfy their preservationist environmentalist backers. It's going to take people away from the table when it comes to BLM, Bureau of Land Management, lands, and multiple use. This is to shift us away from cheap, reliable fossil fuels to transition quickly to solar and wind, which is impractical. There's no baseload, reliable baseload for them. They depend on the sun and wind. They're not serious about technologies like geothermal and nuclear. And they want to make it difficult for people to afford natural gas, to afford oil and gas, just force people to transition. There's no way you're going to get people on board a clean energy agenda if you force them to adopt things that are going to make it a lot more costlier for them to pay their energy bills. If you're going to displace certain energy producers from their jobs, which is what 
undermining the oil and gas industry would do like it did with the coal industry. Like I said, what's past is prologue. They did this before with coal and they said, well, it's because of natural gas and the advent of it that coal died. That may be partly true, but it was the different environmental policies we saw ushered in under the Obama administration, eight years of it, that severely handicapped that industry. And they're trying to do the same thing with oil and gas to force people into transitioning without considering actual clean energy sources, like I said, geothermal and nuclear that can produce clean energy on a baseload that is reliable, that doesn't depend on weather conditions to operate, that is not costlier. And everyone forgets that solar and wind, in addition to having questionable impacts on waters, lands, fish migration patterns with respect to wind turbines, they are backed up by fossil fuels and they're going to exhaust fossil fuels a lot more than existing fuels currently do as they operate in their own right. So it's not practical. They're still not as cheap as traditional fossil fuels are. And when I think about oil and gas producers, there are a lot of people who hunt and fish in the oil and gas industry. Do you really think they're going to work in the industry if it's as disastrous as it's been made out to be? I don't think so. I've interviewed numerous people who work in oil and gas. If they wanted to despoil the land, if they wanted to lose that opportunities to go fishing and hunting, they wouldn't be engaged in this type of work if it truly was destructive. And I've seen fracking recently. I've tried my best as a writer, reporter, observer through my CFACT series to actually go to these places and see these processes firsthand and talk to people who work in these industries because they're not being heard and they're not having their industry represented accurately. They really are not given a fair shake. What I think a lot of people rush to in conservation, unfortunately, is not considering the fact that their fellow sportsmen and women, many of them do partake in this industry. And if you want to see them displaced from the workforce for some goal of transitioning by an arbitrary year, by 2030, by 2045, that's very callous. And you have to remember there are many perspectives. There are still people who work in oil and gas who partake in our industry as well. So I think it's callous to call for different policies to usher in this prematurely, especially when it's proven to be unreliable in many instances. Look at Texas. Look at California, look at other states where they've done this, made their grid solely to accommodate renewables. It doesn't work, not now at least. And there's a lot to be said here. I'm going to finish this rant, but you needed to know this report. I wanted to bring it to you firsthand and the shortcomings with it. I wanted to give you the perspectives of those in the Natural Resources Committee and the Western Caucus and provide some context as to why this is a repetition of the past, what they did to the coal industry. If you don't believe me, read through the quotes and articles that I've included on what the Obama administration did to the coal industry. Very similar. They wanted to hike fees. They wanted to make it more expensive for you to open up coal-fueled plants. They want to do the same for oil and gas operations and make it a lot more expensive for them to bid on leases, to qualify for bonds, things of that sort. So what's past is prologue. More positively, I want to end the podcast today on a story that everyone, every level of conservationist can celebrate, and it is the return of monarch butterflies and just seeing them grow. And this is from NPR. And yes, NPR hasn't done the best, I would say, in other areas of reporting, but in conservation, sometimes they do get it right. And their title reads, The Butterflies Are Back, Annual Migration of Monarchs Shows Highest Numbers in Years. And if you kind of know about 
indicator species. I like to think of monarch butterflies as an indicator species. So when imperiled species are starting to make a comeback, that goes to show that the environment that they're in is breeding ground for them to proliferate, to grow. So as an indicator species, they're coming back, they're bouncing back. So that's really good. Maybe this so-called climate crisis that they're talking about is not as bad, or maybe it's being overhyped if monarch butterflies are making a comeback. Every year, monarch butterflies from all over the western U.S. migrate to coastal California to escape the harsh winter weather. In the 1980s and 90s, more than a million made the trip each year. Those numbers have plummeted by more than 99% in recent years. And then I skipped through a little bit, but this year, the numbers are starting to pick up. Biologists and volunteers across California have already counted more than 100,000 monarchs. That should be celebrated. Maybe a lot of the alarmist charge rhetoric we're hearing is overhyped, especially as individuals and private companies start to take initiative and help restore imperiled species, help restore habitat, help restore landscapes. When I hear stories about monarchs coming back, that to me shows that people are trying to rectify wrongs, trying to improve situations and see indicator species like it make a comeback. So maybe not all is bad in this world. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, comb through some episodes and leave us reviews, we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds. All of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. I get a lot of requests and my schedule is also quite busy. So, so you'll see guests come from me. And I'm, but like I said, I'm always open to different guests coming on the show. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.